Randy, thank you. And to each of the panelists for joining us today. I'm looking forward to all the expertise, the insights and encouragement that will be shared today. I'd like to turn the discussion over to you to announce the rest of the panelists. Randy? Great. Thank you so much, Kim. And uh, thanks to all of you who have chosen to um, spend some time with us today. You will not regret it. Uh, we have an all-star lineup here and uh, you are really gonna hear from the best in the business, the best in the state DOT uh, community. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this panel. So um, let me introduce you to the, uh, the wonderful folks that you'll be hearing from today. Uh, Julie Lorenz is the secretary of the Kansas DOT. She was appointed in January of 2019 uh, to lead KDOT, and she has uh, more than 25 years of experience and is recognized as a national leader of policy development and the use of economic analysis for transportation investment. She's led research for the National Cooperative Highway Research Program on topics such as long-term and emerging trends in transportation and how to really create and sustain a culture of innovation for state departments of transportation. She's currently serving on the executive committee of TRB and is chairing the Council on Aviation for AASHTO. Melinda McGrath is the executive director of the Mississippi DOT. And Melinda began her career with MDOT in 1985 after graduating from Mississippi State uh, University. And um, she has a bachelor's degree in civil engineering. And prior to uh, coming uh, to her uh, position as executive director. She served in many roles, including project engineer in both the Northern and Southern districts and district area engineer over six coastal counties. In 2003, she was named assistant chief engineer of field operations, and she was promoted to the position of deputy executive director and chief engineer in August of 2008. We also have Yasmin Gramian, and she is the secretary of the Pennsylvania DOT. Yasmin serves as the, uh, has been serving in this role since May of last year, and she manages PennDOT's annual budget of $9.5 billion. And prior to joining PennDOT, uh, Yasmin worked for over 30 years in operations design and management of transportation infrastructure systems. She earned a master's and bachelor's degree in civil engineering from the University of Michigan and completed the Tuck Management Training Program at Dartmouth College. She's a professional engineer in Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and Florida. And then finally, we have Victoria Sheehan. She's the commissioner of the New Hampshire DOT. And she was sworn in that role um, in 2015. And she oversees a $650 million state agency of over 1,600 employees dedicated to providing safe and efficient transportation systems. Victoria brings both transportation engineering and management experience in projects and programs to her role as commissioner. Commissioner Sheehan is originally from Ireland and has a master's degree in structural engineering and architecture from the University of Edinburgh. Victoria is currently serving as our very own president of AASHTO, um, only the second woman to ever hold that role. And we are so uh, appreciative and grateful for her leadership in this, uh, in this responsibility. So, Thank you so much to our, all of our panelists for um, being with us today and uh, really am looking forward to this engaging um, conversation that we're about to have. So with that, I'm just gonna go ahead and jump right in. I've got some questions for you and I uh, look forward to um, you guys providing uh, your insight into these uh, issues. 
So the first thing is we know, uh, you know, this has been just a And um, in our country, sure, and things to consider is um, how investment in America's infrastructure uh, really is uh, so critical um, to the future. Um, and 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 one of the things we we want to know is, um, in particular, for your state, what is it doing um, to invest in America's infrastructure to make sure that it really is built to last for generations uh, to come. And so maybe Julie, um, because of your background in um, providing, you know, making sure that states uh, provide that value, can you uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, what you're doing in Kansas um, to uh, make sure it's built to last? Yeah, thanks, Brandy. And I would start with um, zooming out a little bit um, away from construction materials or practices and think about what we are investing in and why. So these are really large investments that need to stand the test of time. And I would say a, such an important piece of that is having some flexibility so that the investments you make today are not necessarily the ones you're gonna make in five or 10 or 20 years from now, given the pace, the accelerating rate of change, particularly as it relates to technology, but also as you look at demographic trends. So those are things to take into consideration. One of the things that we did uh, here in Kansas, and I helped lead an effort in Massachusetts as well, is around scenario planning. So it is impossible. None of us have a crystal ball. We could not have predicted a pandemic exactly. But what we can do is we can look at different long-term and emerging trends in transportation, in technology, in demographics, and predict different kinds of futures. And then you sort of say, all right, so against a backdrop of several futures, what investments are sort of sure bets? They're going to work across lots of scenarios. And then where do we have a couple of leap forward investments? that might really accelerate uh, our development or our prosperity or our equality and equity sorts of considerations. Uh, so an example of that is uh, through the, the conversations we held across Kansas, there was a great recognition that transportation now means moving people and goods and information, technology. So now as we passed our transportation program in Kansas with four hours to spare, it's a 10 year program, we will be investing greatly in broadband because if you don't have access to the internet highway, you don't have access to the world. So um, anyway, welcome any questions on that. I wanna make sure that we have time for everybody else, but it's about big picture views, scenario planning to make um, kind of future-proof those investments. Great, thank you. Yasmin, can you tell us uh, what you're doing in Pennsylvania? I'll be happy to, Randy. Um, in Pennsylvania, we've given much focus on innovative materials and innovative construction practices to improve the quality of pavements and bridges that are being built. Additionally, our team is focusing on asset management approach to assure that these assets are properly maintained and preserved in order to maximize their lifespan. Uh, so what is asset management approach? Uh, it's a structured sequence of maintenance, preservation, repair, rehabilitation, and ultimately replacement if needed that will sustain a desired condition of the asset over the life cycle in a cost-effective manner. Our asset management practices are also integrated 
into our long-range planning, programming, and financial planning, and also risk assessment processes. Great, gotta be nimble, right? You have to be flexible and able to adapt to, to different uh, situations. So great, thank you so much for that, for that feedback. Sure. I'd like to turn to, um, you know, as folks know, or maybe they don't, but um, the FAST Act was extended through September of this year. Um, we know that reauthorization is a big topic uh, for our industry um, uh, over the course of the next few months. And um, so I'd like to ask uh, Victoria Sheehan from New Hampshire about, um, you know, the importance of reauthorization and, uh, you know, how uh, important it is um, related to your state's operations. So here in New Hampshire, we develop a 10-year transportation plan. And as part of that process, we go out and we uh, engage with communities and we try to understand what their transportation priorities are. Um, unfortunately, we never have adequate funding to meet all of the needs, um, but we at least want to understand what the highest priority investment should be. As was touched on by both Julie and Yasmin, you know, we're trying to balance preserving the infrastructure that we have, as well as expanding the services that we offer, and then trying to make those strategic investments that will allow us to keep pace, um, especially as technology evolves. So reauthorization is critical. We need a long-term uh, transportation bill to provide that certainty around the available funding. And then when we develop our transportation plans at the state level, we are certain we'll be able to honor the commitments that we're making to the citizens that we serve. It's extremely frustrating when we have continuing resolutions and short-term bills because it doesn't allow us to do that longer-term planning. And most importantly, we disappoint citizens because we have to prepare as if the funding is coming and start to advance projects. We're out there, we're doing public informational meetings and public hearings and getting geared up. And if the dollars just don't come, then it's frustrating for everyone involved in those processes. So it's all about uh, predictability. And especially in cold weather states like mine, um, our construction season is short. So we need to understand um, exactly what dollars we'll be able to utilize um, in the near term and the long term. Great, thank you. Um, and speaking of the funding certainty, um, for many state DOTs, um, COVID really had um, a, a, a significant impact on um, state budgets. And um, you know the uh, the taxes that are um, you know received at the state level. Um, can we talk now a little bit more about the impact of COVID? Maybe talk a little bit about um, what challenges uh, your state has been facing from a transportation perspective during this pandemic, and um, whether or not you anticipate next year's budget returning um, to to you know kind of pre-COVID um, levels. Uh, maybe uh, Melinda, would you like to go next? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so for um, a month, we had a dip in gas tax collections, but um, other than that, we we bounced back quickly. Uh, you know, when you're when you're uh, when you're kind of on the bottom edge of taxes anyway, you know, your lows are lower and your highs are are low as well. So we. Uh, normalized quickly. So uh, so probably our biggest challenge has been uh, logistical, uh, keeping um, 
um, um, contractors safe, keeping our employees safe, switching to uh, letting more folks go home to work, uh, you know, because we didn't want everyone crowded in our buildings. And so, um, and so our, uh, I would say probably the majority of our admin time has been just uh, um, um, coordination of staff, uh, making sure that, that all of our employees needs are met and that we are still able to meet um, um, all of the things that are expected of a DOT. Thank you, Julie, how about in Kansas? So I would echo some of what Melinda said and expand it a bit uh, in two ways. One, through our motor fuels tax, we share that with cities and counties. And so it's not just been an impact to, DO, to state DOT, but I'm very concerned about our city and county partners. In Kansas, so much of our system is um, actually the local system. It's not the state system. And if those systems don't connect and work well together, it sort of doesn't matter if we have a great highway system, state highway system, if people can't access it on county roads or city streets. So I would make a pitch for, as we think about relief funds, that we make sure there's backfill for cities and counties. That's really important. Um, I would also say that reauthorization is important for long-term stability and good planning, exactly what Victoria said and some guardrails, but also I would be remiss if I didn't point out the enormous value of stimulus investment in infrastructure. It provides really good paying jobs immediately. It's, you know, it's very quick infusion into our economy. But when you think about the long-term value, uh, I can point to several WPA projects in the state of Kansas and those kinds of projects exist across the country, right? Um, that is such a good long-term investment for our country that I am very hopeful for, um, not just reauthorization, but also stimulus. Great, very good point. Yasmin, can you tell us a little bit about the experience in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so I echo uh, what everyone said. Uh, Pennsylvania, we have over 40,000 miles of uh, roadways and 25,000 bridges that state is owns and is support to maintain and take care of. And we rely heavily on um, federal funds, obviously. Uh, and 74% of Pennsylvania highway and bridge funding comes from the state and federal gas taxes. So our funding is very dependent on the consumption of the gas. And when the pandemic hit in March, uh, we saw a rapid reduction in vehicle miles travel dropping all the way down to 45%. And we, it did begin to steadily come back and recovered as businesses began to reopen in the summertime. And by August, we reached somewhere around 85% uh, of the traffic volume that we used to see prior to COVID-19. However, uh, our revenue, we lost a tremendous amount of revenue during that period, right? Where we had a reduction in miles traveled and it estimated to be around five to 600 million for this past fiscal year, by the end of this fiscal year, which is June of 2021. And this is the money that we have lost. It's not recoverable. Um, and we're happy that we saw the, uh, the, the stimulus package coming and it, it, you know, it gave us a relief uh, that we kind of uh, expected and uh, we much needed, I should say. It's not at the level that we were hoping we would get, but still it's, it recovers 410 million of the uh, 600 million revenue losses that we had. 
Great. How about uh, in New Hampshire, Victoria? A very similar story to uh, the other state DOT experience. We saw a dramatic reduction in traffic uh, during the stay-at-home orders. Um, of course, that was needed. Um, every state had to do their part to slow the spread of COVID-19. And so at the peak um, of the stay-at-home orders, we saw about a 50% reduction in traffic across our systems. Um, New Hampshire is a bedroom community to the Boston market. And so we see typically a lot of commuting traffic down to Boston, um, as well as over the borders into Vermont and Maine. And um, that has been reduced significantly. And so the prevalence of telework, um, telemedicine, uh, online shopping, um, as well as moving towards online learning, um, we just don't think we're ever going to get back to where we were in 2019 in terms of traffic volumes. Um, so we've been monitoring both the short-term impact as well as starting to look to the future and understand um, how businesses and individuals will make different choices into the future. And so it's a very uncertain time uh, with respect to revenues. Again, we were appreciative of the relief dollars that came at the end of the calendar year. Um, those dollars were not adequate to cover our losses, um, but certainly they help us uh, plug some holes in our operating budget. Um, and then longer term, you know, we're working with our governor and the legislature to try and understand um, you know, what reductions in service we might need to um, pursue into the future. But we're still extremely optimistic that Congress would deliver additional relief. And as Julie touched on, most importantly, stimulus. Um, we have a, a lot of projects that are ready to go. Um, should we receive additional immediate investment. Great. So uh, a few of you talked about um, telecommuting and, and the, you know, the impact to the workforce. Do you guys think that um, DOTs will, you know, learn from this experience? Will, will telecommuting be, uh, you know, for those who are, are able, um, will be a, a way of the future? Or um, do you think that DOTs will bring folks uh, back into the office when it's, uh, when it's safe to do so? Um, Melinda. Yes, those are, uh, those are excellent questions. Uh, you know, the demand for flexibility in the workplace existed prior to COVID-19 and, and it is certainly not going away. Uh, uh, state DOTs um, really have an opportunity to compete now with the private companies in um, um, the ways that we haven't ever before. After less than a year of working remotely, MDOT has, has significantly changed its, its, its communication infrastructure to accommodate remote and, and distant work workspaces. For example, our bridge division has seen significant productivity in, in increases. We found that in employees that are, that are allowed to work, work from home, that are allowed to adjust their working hours actually perform a lot more productively. Um, and, and, you know, it's become so easy now because we have high powered portable laptops, we have docking stations, we have um, um, broadband internet. Um, I mean, way out even into our most remote areas now, thanks to uh, grants and things over the past five years. Um, but, uh, and, and one of our biggest gains was in our data and um, uh, in our data, 
uh, sorry, data groups responsible for editing and, and analyzing crash data. This group has seen a combined and sustained 30% increase in, in daily output while maintaining the same quality standards that, uh, that were uh, uh, achieved at the office. So, um, you know, one of the things that we've observed is, is when you're at home working, especially certain groups like designers, um, grant writers, analytic guys, and ladies, they, um, they are not interrupted. You know, you don't have that urge to go down to the coffee pot and talk to everybody on the way there and, and on the way back. And we found that that is, that is very disruptive. But I think the, the biggest thing is, uh, you know, uh, so many of our employees have children that are actually virtually learning. And so, um, you know, them being able to adjust and not work eight to five, seven to four, but to be able to work around their family needs, their personal needs, but still produce at even a higher rate than what they were here eight to five has really opened our eyes to the fact that, um, that, that this is not going away. It does enable us to offer what the private sector is offering, we can uh, we can cut overhead costs, and um, you know, and there's there's excellent software available that we actually started implementing three uh, um, years ago, to uh, and and it accurately um, monitors employees' outputs, so we know what they're doing, we know what they're providing, and we know that they are not only meeting their schedule, they're actually uh, ahead of schedule. So, um, so we are very excited about this. You know, the, um, you know we've all had, had many uh, setbacks, challenges as a result of this event, but one good thing is, is we have got a, a much needed mindset change to where, um, you know, we are uh, looking for solutions now. And so, so it isn't all bad. I know that Julie has a lot to say on this topic too. She's all about innovation and uh, changing business practices and to be more efficient. So uh, Julie, what's, what's been your experience in Kansas? So I would say, you know, and hats off to Melinda, you know, like salute to get higher productivity. That is excellent. And what we've seen, not only uh, we've seen similar things within our workforce, but also in partnership with our construction uh, partners. Very important as we looked at e-ticketing and other sorts of things uh, and doing train, we're now doing remote training. We've actually found for our construction inspectors that that's been actually more productive to do the remote training. So all of those sorts of things. So um, those are all very important. And I would add also the other side of the coin. I think it will make us more intentional when we do get together, right? Because you often hear like, oh, the value of a conference, half the value of a conference is networking. Well, now I think we all believe it because <laughs> we've been without it for a year. So I think we will be more intentional when we do have people together to make sure that it's not just a free-for-all time, 
there will be some of that, but also some opportunities to do some cohesive planning because the only way a group is gonna work really well remotely is if they sort of have that foundational ability to work well together. So I think there are all sorts of great lessons that are coming out of this and couldn't agree with Melinda more. Um, Flexi everything about the pandemic has only accelerated the trends that we were already seeing. Great, thank you. Another thing that we've seen um, during these COVID times are, uh, you know, just speed. So speed has been so much greater um, on our roadways and we've seen so many um, crashes, uh, you know, even with reduced traffic volumes. And so um, as uh, you all know, safety is of course the number one priority of all state DOTs. Um, and so I'm interested to hear um, some thoughts on uh, on safety and uh, is there an, a safety innovation that your state has explored and successfully implemented um, maybe through this uh, through this pandemic time? How about in Pennsylvania, Yasmin? Uh, so Brandy, you're absolutely right. And we're constantly looking for ways to improve safety. We say safety is at the core of everything we, we do with, uh, with our employees and with serving the public. Um, we did a number of different things, implemented a number of uh, different initiatives uh, in the construction zones. But what I wanted to talk about was the department experience and increase of accidents and injuries involving crushing injuries, improper employee positioning around equipment, employees almost getting run over and employees getting pinned between equipment and a fixed object. And it was very alarming and very concerning to us, you know. We were also distracted and not really focused um, while you know we're trying to figure out our way through this pandemic, and that could be one of the reasons. And sadly, the department also experienced three life-altering uh, injuries that happened to our Pendle family. And them and their families will never be the same, and this type of incidents can be catastrophic for the employees involved, their family, and also the co-workers, right? So due to this, the department felt it was necessary to initiate a statewide safety stop day for all employees. All operations were halted at the same time statewide for at least an hour. Uh, we used this hour to refocus all employees on safety and to convey the dangers of working around equipment, the danger zones and complacency, which is really what we are faced a lot these days, right? Uh, we did a safety talk. Um, to convey how to combat complacency, what complacency is, and the importance of reporting near misses. Uh, we also did a statewide safety stop day as well for you know, other partners. Uh, we did a survey with our employees and asked them some questions. We, it was very engaging and we were trying, we we're actually adding more trainings and guidance and safety talks and safety related for all employees. Obviously, there is all kinds of technologies we can put in place to improve the safety. There's all kinds of design we can put in place, all kinds of features we can put in place on our bridges, on our highways, guide rails, you name it. But if people are complacent, they're not paying attention, it's not gonna add any value. So we actually focus on the behavior. Yeah, good point about employee um, 
employee safety. You know, uh, we talk so much, you know, at in Washington D.C. and at the, you know, with the federal government about you know traffic safety and uh, you know improvement to the roadway and. Um, but employee safety is so important to the DOT community and just uh, making sure that uh, we're using the, the best practices and, and focusing our attention on the employees is just so critical during these times. Melinda, how about in uh, Mississippi? Yeah, so just uh, kind of tagging on to what um, Yasmin said. Uh, so, um, you know, our so uh, back in 14, we um, we actually hired our first statewide safety coordinator. And then in 16, we hired uh, six to be uh, located in 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 each of our districts. And so uh, and so their job is safety training and one on one on one safety leadership mentoring and so our main emphasis and goal is is we have to change the culture we have to build that strong safety culture with um with all all of our employees to not only worry about themselves or but to look out for each other because you know yasmin hit right on it people are not paying attention they are not alert and i can't tell you how many employees have have told me that if their co-worker hadn't have yelled it yelled out to where they could jump it, jump over something, behind something, they would have been hit. So, uh, so it's just this, uh, just this, just this holistic awareness of making everyone look out for each other. Great, thank you. And so, while we're on the topic of our employees, um, you know, it's a good time, I think, to shift a little bit of our focus now to uh, to workforce and to workforce development. And um, thinking about that, uh, is there any advice that you could give um, some of the audience to help them think about um, you know, elevating their roles in their careers or things that they could do from a professional development standpoint? Victoria, I know that this is definitely one of your uh, passions and uh, that you have uh, you know, a lot to say when it comes to uh, workforce development, knowledge management. So maybe you'd like to provide some comments on that. When I became commissioner in New Hampshire, I was asked what my number one concern was. And at that time, it was the age of our workforce. Uh, we're very fortunate that we have state employees who often give us you know, 20, 30, or even 40 years of service. Um, but our department had a real um, concern that the attrition rate was picking up as more and more people were nearing retirement. And so we really had to pivot and find ways to ensure that we weren't just recruiting and hiring that next generation of workers, but we were preparing them for leadership roles as well. And so we have focused a lot on knowledge management practices, uh, both uh, to ensure that folks have the technical know-how, but also um, can apply that technical knowledge and um, really investing in mentoring and job shadowing programs to ensure that those new employees are exposed to how we approach decision-making um, and are really taking advantage of those senior uh, staff and their experiences while we still have them in the workplace. And so um, I'm always encouraging people um, to both pursue the, the technical training that you need, the, um, the, the background um, that we're looking for in transportation workers is um, changing. Uh, so we want people to be embracing technology and staying current with the trends and innovations. 
Um, but then also, um, you know, we need to do a lot of after action um, analysis uh, of projects, what went well, what didn't go well, um, how we approached advancing a project, um, and how we can always do things better, both for that knowledge transfer, but then also to keep refining and improving how we do work. Um, so it's about the, um, the technical as well as the applied um, learning. And um, you know, in the world of knowledge management, we focus on people, process, technology, and data. Um, so in the past, we've done a lot of training and tried to hire the right person. Um, now we're doing a lot more uh, analysis of data, uh, both when it comes to just even managing our workforce, understanding what skill sets people have. Um, right now, going through the COVID-19 pandemic, as a department, we've been tapped to help with the statewide effort. There's a lot of very talented DOT employees who have a broader background than just transportation. And so starting to make sure that we have real-time access to our HR data to even um, understand what skill sets our folks have or backgrounds, um, you know, items on their resume that um, once have been with the department for five or 10 years, you forget that's where they came from, uh, but making sure that you know, we're able to um, still tap into that um, uh, capability when the time comes. Great, thank you. Uh, Julie, how about in Kansas? Oh, I'd like to pick up on two things that uh, Victoria talked about, and I'd start with mentorship. That is so important for workforce development, whether it's a formal or informal program, and it's a two-way street. Um, I have benefited from some great mentors, and I feel a responsibility to, to mentor others. And when my plate is full, I will still say, hey, Brandy, I will set you up with somebody else. So even if you don't have time, I think you can always connect someone with, with someone else. So that would be the first thing I would suggest. I would also point out that uh, research shows that men are twice as likely as women to pursue a promotion. However, when encouraged, men and women will pursue a promotion at the same rate. So encourage particularly younger women to pursue promotions because they will go for it, but sometimes they just need that little extra encouragement. And let me give you a statistic that I think is absolutely shocking. In 2018, think about the Fortune 500, the set of Fortune 500 companies. At that time, there were 25 women CEOs and 23 male CEOs named John. So think about that. There were almost, I mean, it's like, there are as many Johns as there are women CEOs. So there is work for us to do to encourage our counterparts. Look for the best person for the job, but the way to get to the best person is to have lots of people applying for jobs. So hey, thank you. Wow, I'm gonna use that. That's, a, that's an amazing statistic, thank you. So turning a little bit to the technical side of the business, um, Congress has passed into law the requirement for states to consider resilient materials um, that are not flammable and that don't float for uh, evacuation routes. And I, I was wondering, I think that this is an inter uh, interesting area for a lot of our um, audience to understand how your state is establishing these evacuation routes. What other considerations um, does your state take into, into account when implementing resilience into infrastructure design? And it seems to me like this is a really good question for Melinda, having lots of experience with uh, weather events and resilient infrastructure. Yes, thank you. So, uh, so you know, um, 
our state really had a wake up call after Katrina hit. Uh, you know, that was the first time that that we had ever really thought about uh, bridge slabs floating off into the Gulf. And, you know, we lost two large structures uh, that way. And so, um, and so uh, we also had to build back quickly. So we, um, uh, thankfully, we, we reached out to Florida DOT, who was, who, as you might expect, they were, they were well on the way even before Congress passed anything to using innovation, better structures, better things. So the first thing we did is, um, is we built back both of those structures above the storm surge, except, except for the abutments. You know, it's very quickly to, to come in after a big event and put back in just a end slab. We, um, we also hardened uh, um, vertical of walls, uh, 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 um, abutment walls with more uh, uh, stronger anchoring, armoring, and uh, uh, traffic signals, um, roadway lights, high mass lights are, are designed at the upper end of the um, uh, design charts due to forces. Um, and then we also had to go in and, and reset all of our geodetic surveys markers because uh, uh, global warming, the tide is rising. And so, uh, and so um, um, all of our um, roadways have to be raised because they're too low. Um, we, um, um, Interstate 59, 55 are used to uh, um, contraflow out of, of um, and uh, 49. So we, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to build everything up as high as it needs to be built. So what you have to do is you have to pick three or four routes and you have to armor those, you have to secure those, and those are the routes that are used. Had the chance to come to Mississippi and hear about some of the uh, hurricane experiences and uh, you know, it's just uh, amazing uh, what your organization was able to do and uh, appreciate the, the people that, that were involved in, in, in those efforts and continue to be, um, to prepare for the future. So, um, so one maybe last question um, related to um, the uh, engineer's right to choose and the, um, really the, the importance of flexibility uh, in terms of uh, material selection. And so uh, maybe um, Victoria, could you talk a little bit about how uh, important that is um, to, uh, to the work that you do uh, and the uh, importance of flexibility when it comes to uh, selecting materials? So each of our states are different and we're all facing 
unique challenges as we approach designing infrastructure that will be resilient into the future. And so it's a very uh, slippery slope if Congress would start to dictate the materials that we use. Uh, we support strongly an engineer's right to choose. Um, and I know that that's something that's important to this association, um, the American Concrete Pipe Association. Uh, like I said, we would not want to be told um, how to approach the design and replacement of our infrastructure. We're balancing a lot of different factors. We're looking at you know, short-term costs, long-term costs, traffic volumes, uh, truck traffic, um, and then frequency of storm events. And uh, New Hampshire is a small but beautiful state with a lot of different um, topography. You know, we have a short coastline, and so we have one approach as we're looking at resiliency and preparing for increases in sea level rise, um, whereas you know, higher elevations um, we're very vulnerable uh, to flash flooding with significant rainstorm events in the summer months. And so we really are picking our materials based on the unique location, um, as well as our history in terms of flooding and storm events. And so it's really, it cannot be a one size fits all approach. We need to let the engineers do their job and pick the right material for the right location. Excellent. Well, thank you. I just want to um, thank everybody, um, thank all of our panelists for the time that they've spent with us today and giving us uh, your insight into uh, the operations of your DOT and the priorities that you have. And um, I just really am grateful for your um, leadership um, within your own DOTs, but also uh, within the Ashto uh, State DOT community. And it's really my pleasure to have the opportunity to work with each of you. So thanks for uh, choosing to be with us today. Yeah, thank you, Brandy, and thank you uh, to our panelists, Julie, Melinda, Yasmin, and Victoria. I just want to echo Brandy's acknowledgement for you guys spending time with us today and sharing a wealth of information as such an accomplished set of industry professionals. I know that we can each take something back from the discussion and apply it to our own practices. What I took away was that all the challenges, as well as innovations that DOTs are are implementing, it's imperative for our industry to continue to provide the highest quality products with timely delivery uh, through our continued innovation in our own industry in partnership with the DOTs and to ensure a long-term solution for the traveling public. And the second thing I took away was mentorship, the future of our work at workforce development. I'll continue to pursue and promote mentorship and encouragement. So. Thank you for sharing this perspective, as well as a fantastic reminder for us to keep the gold standard for our product. If anyone is interested to learn more about the co-sponsors of this event, which is ACPA, ASHTO, and the Women in Concrete Alliance, please visit their LinkedIn pages.